Hi, I'm on Earth Originals on Spotify. My name is Shujai Prashad Chatterjee. I'm an interdisciplinary artist. And I'm talking to Hindu Sengupta, um, whom I lovingly called a transformer, an author, uh, somebody who's a change agent, a re-engineer, and a re-engineer of India's future, hopefully. And um, uh, I'm looking forward to a session at uh, the Earth Culture Quest, which is a Z initiative. We begin this conversation uh, by asking Hindol, what would uh, we look forward to you in the session of Earth? What are you going to be speaking on? Or what do you intend to speak on? What do you love to speak on? Oh, uh, well, thank you very much. You've been very, very thank kind. I'm, a, I'm really delighted to be part of the Earth Festival for the second time. I was very pleased to actually fly down from Oxford to come and attend it last year. Um, and I'm very, very happy that I'm in Delhi this year and I would be able to join this wonderful festival. Uh, my congratulations to the Z Group for having organized this, always marvelously organized. And my heartiest congratulations to my old friend and the curator of this festival, Vikram Sampath. Um, you know, uh, well done, Vikram, well done, Z. Um, what am I going to be talking about? Well, what Earth wants to talk about or wants to do, I think we have an alignment of vision, so to speak. I think. I believe in my work, the idea that India is a civilizational state is a very important concept. And um, that has many manifestations. And one of the manifestations, of course, is cultural. And that cultural manifestation of a civilizational state really takes place in various ways. It takes place in the word that you use, in interdisciplinary ways, which means how does, for instance, foreign policy talk to Sieta? for instance, if I were to ask. Oh, well, it could, right? I mean, you know, and it and it does. I mean, if you certainly we know that foreign policy talks to cinema all the time and cinema talks to foreign policy because so much of Hollywood, what we call Hollywood, is such a story of embedded foreign policy um, visions and, and dynamics, right? I mean, let's talk about, for instance, that wonderful film, The King and I. If you were to look at that film, what really is happening there? Well, what's happening there is a particular um, Anglo-centric, or in this case, Americo-centric, so to speak, vision of the world is genteelly being propagated as the norm, as we would say in international relations, the normative values are being passed on from one part of the world, in this case, only America, to the rest of the world. I mean, that really, if you ask me what has been Walt Disney's work all his life, and in the Walt Disney Corporation after, you know, after the death of Walt Disney, well, it has been to propagate the idea of America as a civilization, right? Today, done more effectively in many ways by companies like Marvel and so on and so forth. What do they really do? What are these stories about? Well, these stories are about propagating this idea that there is something unique about America and America has a unique role in the world and American ideas have a unique role in the world. And I think the same thing today is done by the Chinese. Do you know, for instance, that in the last couple of years, one of the biggest Chinese films is this film, um, I think, what is it called? It's called Wolf something, I forget the exact name, but but it's, it essentially is a Chinese Rambo. So there's this Chinese actor who's exactly like Rambo, who's in Africa. Now you can connect those dots very easily. China's influence in Africa is growing. And what is that film all about? It's about this good Chinese guy, this soldier who saves a lot of African lives by fighting back against the bad guys 
who are the bad guys, often Caucasians. <laughs> so course. you see the story being repeated again and again, where foreign policy and culture are embedded and uh, you know intertwined and 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 enmeshed together. Right? Wow. It's impossible to ignore. It's also very interesting that uh, I must. Uh, and just to complete, uh, sure. and I, I believe that. You know, if India is truly going to rise, and I do believe India is rising, they're now the fifth largest economy in the world, having overtaken the United Kingdom. Uh, the news just out a couple of days ago, many of us were anticipating this. India has to tell its story again, right? The question is how, and my work answers in a, in a small way that how. I'm sure uh, India is going to tell its story, and I'm going to come to this because uh, I'm sure India is going to cast its heart out on the Anchor app, which is so easy to use. Uh, we don't require fancy equipment. It's not expensive. And you can cast your hearts out on Spotify, my friends, as Hindul and I are doing. Hindul will take, in, uh, take it on from here on Earth Originals that you said that India is ready to tell its story. What is the story going to be like? What do you see in the future? Well, there are many stories that India could tell. Yeah. But let's take something which everybody is talking about today. India has a great story to tell, which directly addresses one of the biggest problems of our time, mental health. So if you're going to talk about mental health, you cannot but talk about meditation. The New Yorker has just, for instance, written this beautiful, I think maybe 20,000 word or maybe 15,000 word essay on Yuval Noah Harari, the great Israeli historian. Mm -hmm. And in, through that entire piece, if you look at the background track of that piece, what is it saying? It's talking about his engagement with Vipassana. Wow. Where does he come to do Vipassana? Well, of course, he comes to Bombay, to Mumbai, on the outskirts of Bombay is the great center of Vipassana. And you will know Harari comes there to, you know, be part of these 10 day sessions of utter silence and meditation, which is plays a bedrock of all the work that he does. Now, this story, it is rather ironic, is being told not by an Indian, but by an Israeli historian, right? And my argument is that it's because Indians don't know enough about this. You know, I write this, uh, you know, me and another friend, we created this platform called Grin to tell this story better. And we just did a, you know, uh, interview with this, the head of the Institute Cervantes in Delhi. Now, that's run by this guy called Oscar Pujol. Now, Oscar Pujol is a very interesting man because he has a PhD in Sanskrit and for nearly two decades taught at the Banaras Hindu University Spanish. And he wrote uh, a 60,000 entry Spanish to Sanskrit dictionary. Right. Oh. And Oscar Pujol, we just did an interview with him and I asked him, you know, how Sanskrit has changed his life. And of course, he spoke about very beautifully how it's a living language and not a dead language. And then he quoted to me and I want to quote to you. I asked him, you know, what do you think is the is your favorite verse in Sanskrit? And he, he quoted from the Chandokya Upanishad and that those beautiful lines, which essentially says that everything that you see in the universe the heart can contain what is in the heart is in the universe and what is not there is not elsewhere now that of course is a direct resonance and this is how 
all our knowledge is interconnected if you watch peter brook's mahabharat it begins with those famous lines of the mahabharat that all that there is is, is in the mahabharat in the what is not in the mahabharat is not no, elsewhere. Not elsewhere but that has a deeper root if you go back to the upanishads you know it says everything so because what, when they say everything that's in the mahabharat is in the world what do they mean they mean all emotions that you can see in the universe or the world is reflected in this story and vice versa right and that has a deeper root because here's the chandokya upanishad telling us that everything that your heart can feel how lovely and is contained in the universe and the entire universe is contained in your heart that's fantastic you know uh, i was uh, was quite intrigued uh, reading about you you have uh, if you have an expanse of work which is uh, which is so impressive hindol at such a young uh, age um, and uh, i was particularly intrigued by the shishupal draft mm. and uh, could you talk a talk a little bit about because that kind of reflected your uh, your vision as a change agent for the indian uh, indian's polity so uh, could you could you talk about a little bit about that yeah. your vision thank you you're very kind um, you know, I wrote about the Shishupal doctrine yeah. uh, as a security doctrine for India. Right. Uh, as a senior fellow at that time of the Observer Research Foundation, mm-hmm. I have subsequently, because of my new roles elsewhere, moved to becoming a visiting fellow. But um, I wrote that doctrine to try and understand um, how India's. So, in international relations, there's something called, uh, you know, this the asymmetry between India and Pakistan, you know, and these asymmetric sort of relationships mean that even though Pakistan can never really beat India in a direct war, it has asymmetric methods, right, which could be the the use of like irregulars, which could be, you know, gaining sort of strength from its association with America, which it could be the use of the Afghanistan leverage and so on and so forth to balance the power. Because after all, what is international relations? It is a balance of power, right? Now, I wrote, and a lot of people believe that, well, India must continue to consistently, uh, you know, give, give things to make peace happen, right? Because it's the bigger player. Now, of course, the reality is much, much more complicated than that. And I argue in the Shishupal doctrine, taking off from the great Shishupal story of the Mahabharat, where Lord Krishna um, essentially promises to the mother of Shishupal that I will forgive him a hundred times, mm-hmm. right? And he does forgive him, forgive Shishupal a hundred times, right? But the logic is that once that threshold is crossed, the retribution is swift and the retribution is unerring. So it is a combination of a lot of generosity, but with embedded retributive justice, you know, contained within it. And I argue that uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has showcased a path where India will continue consistently to make arrangements or to provide platforms where a peace deal or a peace negotiation could happen. It would open doors for it consistently. However, if those doors are spurned and if they are ignored and if India is indeed attacked it will not hesitate in you know delivering swift and unerring retributive justice 
So that was the, and I, and I show in that entire essay, uh, in that entire paper, step by step how that unfolds. And I say that the Shishupal story, um, and this has been used, you know, uh, you know, civilizational stories have been used many times in many other parts of the world in the, in, you know, for the service of foreign policy. And I argue that until Prime Minister Narendra Modi, this is the big change. It's a mindset change. And um, the use of the Shishupal doctrine, and I, and I spell it out one by one, you know, you know, look at his decision to send in jets after Balakot. You know, everybody thought that this was a red line. And, you know, we used to constantly say, this is a red line, this is a red line. But that red line was breached. It was breached, of course, as I've argued before. It was breached because India got its second strike capabilities with the induction of an indigenously built nuclear submarine. So now we're getting into sort of, you know, more sort of details of of, of, of security studies. I don't Which want is to... interesting. Yeah, no, no, but I don't want to, you know, bore the sort of less no, technical sure. listeners. Yeah, yeah. But the moral of the story is that um, India, I believe, I believe, is prepared finally to step up and deliver swift retributive justice if its platforms of open negotiation are spurned. And that, I argue, in the Shishupal Doctrine paper, is a definitive change from an older India. Fantastic. And though, uh, you know, here on Spotify, we're uh, speaking on Earth Originals, um, and I hope uh, we're casting our hearts out, like Indol and I are doing, on the Anchor app, which is very easy uh, to, to handle. It requires no fancy equipment. It's not expensive. India needs to cast its heart out on Spotify and uh, share its vis vision uh, to a larger audience like we are doing uh, at the Earth, a culture quest, which is scheduled for this weekend. Um, we are, uh, I, I, mean, I, I mean, going by your work, uh, you have been re-engineering a lot of things uh, as far as financial politics is concerned in this country. And that's very intriguing. Uh, if you could talk us talk a little bit about that. So I I have a, I'm a firm believer in a couple of things. You know, yeah. uh, when to 2015 when I wrote Recasting India, right. which was uh, then shortlisted, but for the Hayek Prize, you know, which is given by the Manhattan Institute in memory of the Nobel laureate Frederick Hayek. Yeah. Um, what was my argument in that book? And I've held on to that argument. I believe that Indian capitalism is different or the India's or India's engagement with the free markets is different because it is really uh, engagement which is happening bottom up. Mm -hmm. You know, India is today the third largest ecosystem for startups in the world. And this ecosystem has been built ground up, right? And it will continue to grow. Um, and, you know, I, I do believe at some point India will become the world's largest ecosystem for startups because I think entrepreneurship is really ingrained in the Indian story. It's just that many years of socialism meant that we forgot that story. I mean, you know, you're Bengali, so am I. You, you know, I always say, and I said it in Recasting India, that, you know, people only remember one part of the Tagore story. They remember Robindranath. Think about Prince Warkanath Tagore, right? I mean, he is... Um, 
uh, he is a renaissance man as you correctly put it and he believes in enterprise he he's building banks he's building trading companies he'll be he's building shipping lines he's, he's bringing, building he's bringing uh, uh, i mean he, he was also one of the proponents of the railways and absolutely yeah. so here's a man who really believes in enterprise and it is a tragedy that we have forgotten these stories right, right? and absolutely. and I, I keep saying you know robindranath is of course wonderful i mean no doubt but we should also celebrate the spirit of dwarka right and and that is that embedded spirit of entrepreneurship you know think about gyanadhanudini uh, devi of course, family. Of she, course. she talked about emancipation of women which is a challenge today also i mean many indeed years and you know and when shami bibekanand is in america yeah. he's telling the americans that it's only now that you all are thinking of having women in your universities and he proudly says my university which is kolkata university calcutta university calcutta university you know welcomed in women students much before the universities of the west all of this we have forgotten and i think it is very important for new generations of indians people like you and me to reinvent and reunderstand and reinvigorate this Absolutely. knowledge right yes. and i think it's very very important that we reembrace this story it is our story india is a civilizational state which means that our sense of nationhood is derived from a strong sense of civilization right yes. our civilization look every every country that has ever risen to the top in the world has had a grand narrative yeah. right without a grand narrative and for america of course it's this idea that you know america is this you know this great great land of the free and home of the brave right. it is the world's you know most powerful democracy it stands for freedom and all of that right american exceptionalism you know where does american exceptionalism come from it comes from their grand narrative and i believe india must have its own grand narrative we have many problems no doubt and you know you and i could spend a whole day talking about our Absolutely. problems but we must now rise above them and look at our grand narrative and say that here is a new generation of indians who now have a voice people like you and me and we now have uh, you know we have a duty almost to craft this grand narrative and if my work is ever going to amount to anything uh, you know it perhaps will be in the use of this yeah you know um um uh, i i love to say that 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 arts uh, also have a different narrative today of course, I mean, of course. and it's it's of it's course. kind of uh, going to reengineering um we are on art originals on spotify and um i'm with hindol um a very bright mind uh, uh, that i'm speaking to this morning um hindol uh, there is um, an element that uh, came up in our discussion where you were talking about the grand narrative that india is ready to narrate and um, announce but there's a whole lot of uh, revisiting uh, the heritage and history and civilization the scriptures in all of it that uh, that a lot of indologists are talking about today how do you uh, how do you look at that Well look I I have no problems as you know history is read it and consistent every generation has to read out the history right mm. uh or their history um but I am I think it's very very interesting and very wise to consistently relook at history mm-hmm. however there is something called epistemological sanctity yes. and I think we should not forget that there is there is grounds to uh to be worried about the you know t- about epistemological sanctity being maintained 
And I would consistently argue, I mean, I have re-looked at history again and again in my work, including in my last book on Sadaival Bhai Patel, it's the you know, last big biography of Patel, that, or the only big biography of Patel which came out in the last 30 years. Um, you have to do a lot of archival work in order to make any reassessment of history. My Patel book, for instance, was conducted, research was conducted on it across five libraries and you know archives around the world. Um, I did work on it in, in Colombia. I did work on it, of course, in Delhi. Um, you know, I looked at archives in, in England and so on and so forth, right? Including the Mountbatten archives in the University of Southampton and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so unless you do that sort of, unless you bring that sort of archival rigor, so to speak, uh, I think it is not wise to consider a reassessment a reassessment, as it were. I think historical reassessment is very important and indeed very urgent, but I would urge a certain degree of archival dignity be attached to it. And, and I think that's important and I don't think we should lose sight of that. Otherwise, it's very easy for a historical reimagining or reassessment to go down the line of just pure play, you know, polemic. And that's, you know, it might be interesting to get a few retweets here and there, but I don't think it really adds to our own understanding. So I would urge, um, you know, historians, my contemporaries and younger to really, uh, you know, focus more on the uh, on archival work, which upon which their work rests. Uh, there might be others who are who are not historians or don't consider themselves historians, but still want to engage with history, which is perfectly fine. And, you know, I, people should, you know, all kinds of people should contribute. But, I mean, there is something like fake history, you know, like this fake news. And I think we should be very careful uh, between a real honest reassessment of history, which is extremely urgent, extremely important work, and just rhetoric and polemic on social media. Fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, as we, uh, you know, you know, you 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 congratulated us, and I know uh, what Earth means to you now. When they say that it's it's important to rediscover, to reconnect, realign, and uh, you've been talking about uh, uh, you know the way that one needs to look at. Uh, I am very intrigued to ask you, Hindu, um, and you have you're sensitive. You would understand this. Uh, what is the future of human rights in this country? I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about foreign policy, we're talking about a lot of other things, but what about human rights? Can we talk about it? Yeah, yeah, we and we should. Look, I mean, I think the question of human rights is really a question of human dignity, and human yes. dignity rests on two fundamental pillars. First is the individual pillar, and that individual pillar is dramatically and unequivocally connected to prosperity. You, Vivekananda said, you cannot teach a hungry man about God. You know, you cannot teach a hungry man about human rights either. So, you know, any any uh, real push towards, you know, greater human rights comes with an overall rise in well-being, right? You must or one must become prosperous. And I think, I think one of the great tragedies of India has been that, um, and you know, you know, you come from Bengal, and you know, Bengal had its own sort of history about yes. this. You know, this, this povertarian mentality must end, you know, we are we were a country of great wealth for most of our history and we must return to becoming a country of great wealth. And as wealth spreads, people gain the confidence to demand what is rightfully due to them. And I think that this idea of prosperity must come first. 
We now have record level, low levels of abject poverty in our country. It has dramatically fallen. But because we're a large country, there's still, you know, room for improvement. And we must bring this sense of well-being to the widest possible number of people, which is when they will have the confidence to demand greater rights for themselves. So I think there's a demand and supply question here. And there's another question which is also unavoidable. Look, India must settle its sovereignty issues. We have had 70 years of not solving our sovereignty issues. You know, Kashmir, for instance, you know, you cannot have a post-colonial nation cannot sustain itself if its sovereignty, its fundamental sovereignty issues, which is essentially the issues of its borders, are open for 70 years. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in any part of the world. It cannot work. So India must settle its sovereignty issues. And what that means, of course, is a complex question. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be uh, so silly as to, you know, give a pat answer on a podcast to complex questions of policy like this. However, it is undoubtedly clear that for India to, you know, rise and to really fulfill its destiny, its fundamental sovereignty issues must be solved. And unless that is brought to a, some sort of conclusion, many other things cannot follow. So I think that's very important. And these are, of course, as you understand, interlinked issues. So I think we will go through a, a period of, um, you know, significant questioning and re-questioning and re-analysis and analysis. But I do believe if India fundamentally continues to become prosperous, if we don't go down, if we don't fall into uh, the low middle income trap, you know, because we're still in the low middle income, we're not middle income. So, you know, in economics, we talk about the middle income trap. Well, we are still in the lower side of that middle income. We are not still yet at, at, at even middle income. Right. So we have to escape this middle income trap. And it's very difficult. I mean, if you if you look at economic analysis, one of the toughest things for countries to do is to escape this middle income trap. Right. Because you hit a particular level of prosperity and you just cannot break beyond that. Right. So we have to escape this low middle income trap, bring greater prosperity. And I do believe many things shall follow from there. For instance, you know, look at our democracy, you know, uh, something to be proud of for all the criticism that is given in our democracy or ladle onto our democracy. We continue to be a country where people vote openly and choices differ. Governments change peacefully, even governments which, uh, you know, begin to gain a, a semblance of eternity, so to speak. Oh, you know, they've been there for 15 years or whatever. They change. They change, whether it's in the states or at the center. You know, democracy gives us a constant, vibrant, um, you know, outlet for people to express their opinion. And that's not to be scoffed at. Because especially at a time like this around the world where many authoritarian ideas are beginning to raise their heads again around the world, Indian democracy is truly something to be treasured. So if we are consistently able to maintain transitions in government, you know, um, enable free and fair elections, that's a big win. I would not underestimate that at all. Uh, but having said that, yes, we will go through the next 10, 20 years of a lot of churn in India. You know, I sometimes like to say this is the Samudra Manthan in India. You know, you know, the great story of the Samudra Manthan, uh, the gods and the quote unquote, the Asuras, which are not really demons, but just non-gods, shall we say, are, um, are churning the ocean with a, with a great serpent, as it were. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and what are they looking for? They're looking for... Amrita. 
Amrita, you know, the nectar of life, so to speak, you know, of immortality. But what comes out first, uh, you know, poison, right? And, And poison so terrible that it can destroy the three worlds. So what is the solution? Somebody has to bear that poison. Yeah. Well, the only person who can do it is Shiva, who, yeah. who, but who, even he cannot drink it because of if course. he drinks it, it would destroy him too. So only Shiva can hold it in his ne- neck. That's why he's Neel Kanta, you know, Neel Kanta, as we would say in Bengali, yeah. because it, it turns his neck blue, so yeah. to speak, right? And uh, what an incredible story. So I think India will go through this great Samudra Manthan. You know, I, I am a firm believer that the nectar will emerge and is already emerging. There will be some, you know, uh, problematic things that will emerge too. Uh, we will just have to live through it. Well, um, thank you very much. Uh, we will be closing this session on uh, Earth Originals on Spotify. Um, it is uh, it is fantastic to uh, it is fantastic to hear your heart and my heart being cast out on uh, on Spotify through app which is so easy to download um, doesn't require fancy equipment just just cast your hearts out and india will soon announce and hear its grand narrative through people like uh hindol sangupta who's going to be a speaker a, a venerable speaker at uh, the earth culture quest which is a z initiative uh, we would close this session uh, hindol by thanking you for your time and also um uh, a little insight on uh, something which is uh, troubling the country at this moment, which is the economic meltdown. Uh, if you could uh, share your insight uh, on that, please. Well, what is happening in the, as far as economics is concerned in, in India at the moment is we are going through a very large cost correction, yes. uh, especially with our banking system. They had been abused for so long that it needed a major spring cleaning and you know yeah. it's, a, it's a you know it's like cleaning friends in a fame that's Facebook. right you know yeah. and you know <laughs> we are we are the land which celebrates basant right I know. the ritual of spring and i think you know spring cleaning is going on in yes. our economy at the moment i think it was abused in many many ways Very you know the so. banks were abused in many many ways yeah. but you're already seeing for instance if you look at the ibc process yes. you know many thousands of crores actually coming back into the banking system that's right, right yeah. with the conclusion of very large issues you know look at the SR case for instance and so on and so forth right so as these cases get resolved and money comes back into the banking system we are rebuilding our entire banking system our entire economy ground up once again and this spring cleaning will take some time but you know the skies are blue once again and (laughs) spring is here and I'm firm in my determined uh, conviction that uh, spring is returning to the Indian economy Fantastic. Thank you, Hindo. Thank, Thank you very much, much for, you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for talking Thanks. to me and congratulations on this wonderful art festival once again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.